This Bible study is entitled The Glory of Christ. Part of the Revelation of Jesus series. A study of Revelation chapter 1. Father, we want to thank you again for the wonder of your word. And thank you, Lord, that you promised that the entrance to it will give us light. And we pray, Lord, for that light to shine in our hearts and in our lives, that we might become uh, a faithful witness. Bless us, Lord, for this hour, we pray, for in the name of your wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are concentrating tonight on... Um, starting at verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1 and going through to verse 8. Uh, I fin I'm just going to read the 8th verse. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, I'm trying to be uh, a little brief uh, tonight. Uh, I've already cut three 45-minute sermons uh, down so we'll keep trying we're now come entering into what i think is the exciting uh, phase of this book just and as, as we come into it just one or two introductory uh items uh then in, beginning to unveil remember we talked about uh it's the revelation of jesus christ uh it could be either by or of and I think we're looking at the revealing of him uh, in the early chapters in a very special way. Uh, I, I believe in a Christ-centered ministry, and uh, we really do need to keep him there. But when we come to it, the first thing we look at, and I've been very careful here, um, who wrote it? Well, if we know our Bible uh, reasonably well, we'll know that all Scripture is inspired by God. In other words, it comes from God. But he uses intermediaries, and I call this the penman, the penman. And that's the uh, John the Apostle, known as the beloved disciple. Uh, we know Peter was noted for being impetuous. John was known for his devoted love. He's the only apostle, incidentally, that was mentioned at the cross. He was the one who leaned on Jesus' bosom. He's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The writer of the fourth gospel, the gospel of God's son. The writer of three letters of love. And now, he's not the, he may be the writer, but he's not the author. And what, if you are familiar with these writings, you will note he was delighted to meditate on the Lord Jesus. And he says, Mine eyes have seen and my hands have handled the word of life. I have 1 John 1 1. Described as being ignorant and unlearned in Acts 4 13. Yet he was one in whom Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, was perfectly fulfilled. That was that righteous man. 
John, as we say, uh, is this tremendous disciple. Uh, and some, one of the problems when you read a lot, of, a lot of books and a lot of commentaries and things like that, you learn a lot of funny things. Some writers have asked why John picked the se these seven churches that uh, are mentioned in this passage. Well, first of all, John didn't pick them. It was the Lord himself who picked these seven churches. Why seven? Well, it's, that's that number that encompasses completeness. And so it is a picture, uh, and I'll be going into each one of these letters a bit later in our series. It's a picture of a completeness. Now, some people put them as seven periods of church history. Uh, the problem is sometimes different writers have different timings for the church history, which makes it an anomaly. I tend to think of it in this way. It's a complete picture of the church, the true church, at any given point of time in history. In our generation, you'll find replicas of these churches. And so that's behind, that's the idea behind the number seven. Uh, and it's the Apostle John, uh, he refers to himself five times in, the, in this book. Uh, and three times he's emphatic, I, John, um, which is helpful. Our next section starts at verse 9 with I, John. There's that emphatic change of emphasis. And he describes himself as a brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverances which are in Christ. And we know that uh, Jesus himself said, in this life you will have tribulation. Uh, he also talks about that he saw and heard all of these things that he is recording. So John is the penman that uh, draws our attention under the anointing of the Spirit of God on the direct instructions of God through Christ to Christ and about Christ. The writer, well, that was the beloved apostle. Now, to who was it written? To the seven churches in Asia. Now, it is now Turkey. And it, you could, there are trips uh, from different places where you can go and have a tour around all those different places. And if one starts at Ephesus and sets out on a journey, it's a roughly a circle that you follow. You go set out from Ephesus and you go around in a circle and you end up back where you started. It's, uh, it's not a perfect circle, but a circle nonetheless. And the greeting, grace and peace. These are two great New Testament words and Sometimes I think we take them um, too much for granted. But grace basically means that which giveth joy. 
God freely given us all things which pertain to salvation. Not because we deserve it, but because God delights to bring pleasure to his children's hearts. It's God's good will towards us and God's good work in us. Everything that we have, we have through God's goodness. Peace. The Hebrew greeting, shalom. And it's not an absence of war. It has a deeper meaning of all-round prosperity. It is the sweet evidence and assurance of the work of grace. Some years ago, we had the privilege of being in Israel, and it was just after it was on the we arrived on the day of the funeral of the president that was assassinated. And everywhere they were bristling with soldiers with their guns. But if you'd walked up at any one of them, you could have said to them, Shalom. And they would have replied, Shalom. Uh, they were there ready to fight. It was a warfare situation. But it, this peace is active in every situation of life. My peace, Jesus says, I give unto you. It is that state of heart and soul resulting from the operations of grace which gives us that peace that passeth understanding. So what was the source of the greetings? Well, first of all, it was God the Father. And if you read uh, that passage again at your leisure, you will find that. Him which is, which was, and which is to come. And if you find, you will find that is actually cross-referenced into Exodus to when Moses says, what's your name? And he gets Jehovah, I am what I am. Who is this? It's the same title plus Almighty, which is only used of God. And you find, again, I want to stress something at this point. Please take note of all these things because they will reoccur through the rest of the book. All these wonderful things about God, about the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will arise again and again. So you can look, check out that again, Revelation 4, 8, the Almighty. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which is to come. Revelation 21 and verse 22, And I saw no temple there, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Notice the comparison between the Almighty and the Lamb. What we see as we consider this, the unchangeableness of God. He is what he is and always will be. Now you will find there a difference in order between our verse and chapter 4, verse 8. Here which is comes first, there which was comes first. Our verse is God's present, 1896 was a present concern for his servant's welfare. 
chapter 4 and verse 8 is a picture of the future glory of God that Christ would partake of. And so you have this a picture of the Father. Rabbi would explain, I was, I still am, and in the future, I still will be. That's how they would apply that uh, from Jehovah, I am, that I am. It's a name of unsurpassed grandeur. El Shaddai and Jehovah was well known to Jewish disciples. There is much more to that. Uh, I was just looking up some of my notes. I've got messages on the greatness of God. And uh, they're abound. Because God is all in all to all of us. At least I hope he is. Uh, and then it wasn't only God, the Father, that was uh, responsible for this book. It is God, the Holy Spirit. You get the seven spirits. If you go back into Isaiah or Proverbs, is it, uh, where it talks about wisdom has builded a house with seven pillars. You find the what those pillars are perhaps in James. When you move, it, again, where, where do you start with the Holy Spirit? There's so much that you need to know about him. Maybe it's the fact that the seven spirits is a reference to the perfectness of his character and his work. It certainly informs us of the abundance of his power. And remember, this same Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us. So this power dwells in us. A poet wrote this, Thou the anointing spirit art, who dost thy sevenfold gifts impart. And if you study Isaiah 11.2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. The sevenfold picture of the spirit. One of the, it is typified actually in the tabernacle. I don't know how well familiar you are with the tabernacle. But in the tabernacle, in the holy place, the sacrifice of the animals took place in the open air and was lit by the sunshine. If you go into the holies of holies, that was lit by the Shekinah glory of God. In the holy place, where was the showbread, the altar of incense, there was a candlestick to give the light. And it was seven branched. And... Because it was oil, it speaks of the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit in our fellowship, the bread, and in our worship, the altar. When you go in, you'll find there is a little later in this book, it talks about the seven eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, again, that's speaking of the work of the Spirit of God moving amongst us. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit is one who was sent. He is sent 
to indwell us. It's a tremendous picture of how the Son was sent and the Spirit is sent. Now, these seven spirits which are before his throne, used often in Revelation, and it is the expression for the presence of the God of God in his holy temple. Do you remember when Solomon uh, dedicated the temple? The Spirit of the Lord came down and filled the place, and all the priests had to go out. Such was the sense of the presence of God. He fulfilled the purpose of him who sits on the throne, which is Christ. He is God himself, imparted to, for, to work his good will and pleasure in us and through us. Then the third is God the Son. Now I hope you've uh, been uh, taking real note. We are looking at the Trinity in action. And it's as if all three are active, which they are. Active in creation. Active in the redemption act in Exodus. Active in the work of the cross and all that it fulfills. And active always, working towards the same goal. And that goal is to present many sons who will be replicas of the Son in glory. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he surrendered his self-sufficiency. He humbled himself in Philippians 2.8. He became the God-dependent man. His whole life and labours reveal an entire absence of self dependence i can do nothing of myself and yet he came to be over all god blessed forever romans 9 5 john here gives him three titles now if you've heard this before then please be patient when i was at bible college in homiletics the first year uh, you made your own passage up and spoke on it, and uh, the judge joined that. In the second year, the senior lecturer would give you a passage or a verse, and you would present it to the whole college. And this is what I was given when it was my turn. And it was, uh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I took it home that night, read it, pondered on it, and went back the next morning and asked if they'd made a mistake. Who loved us? Yes, that's, you can speak easily enough, and so on. But no, it was right. So I, on my knees, I came up with three uh, PSs, and I'll give you to them in a minute or two. You could, of course, look at this as prophet, priest, and king and consider profitably what these are and what our response should be. We could look at it in the context of Revelation past, 
present and future. But we will look at the three titles from a slightly different position. And if you wish, I will give you some practical uh, thoughts from each one. Isaiah, I call this one, the faithful witness, the perfect servant. The perfect servant. Isaiah 55, 4, I have given him for a witness. John 7 as well. John 18, I came into the world to bear witness unto the truth. Now, it is required of a witness that he be faithful, trustworthy, dependable. He must declare accurately the whole truth without respect of persons. Now, I've been, I've sat on uh, juries and uh, sometimes you have to quiz, uh, wonder about some of the uh, faithful, trustworthy, dependable people who are witnesses. But I want to turn you to, you can turn to Isaiah 42 and uh, behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. A tremendous description of this perfect servant. Also consider Psalm 46 to 10 at your leisure. They reveal prophetically the Lord's offers as the perfect servant. The perfect servant. Isaiah again he shall bring forth judgment according to truth. That's uh, uh, what it's known as a new translation uh, written, uh, translated by a man called John Nelson Darby. The psalmist says, I have declared thy faithfulness and salvation. Speaking of Christ. John 8, 29, For I do always the things that please him. Matthew 26, not my will, but thine be done. John 9, I do the works of him who sent me. And if we examine his life in detail, we can see how he fulfilled all the things that we mentioned the good servant should have. He served God with undeviating fidelity and unswerving loyalty. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, faced with the horror of the cross, not my will, but thine be done. He came to reveal all the perfections 
counsel and truths and will of God. And if you read your Gospels, he held nothing back. He was upright, he was dependable, he was the light of the world, without whom God dwelt in darkness, naturally speaking. Naturally speaking. Now here is a little something that I find amazing. He said, I am the light of the world. But in another place, he says something extraordinary. Looking to his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. Wow. It goes hand in hand with something I've, I've, I've discovered in uh, Ephesians. We are co-workers with God. And it seems as if this, when we actually believe and seek to be a, 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 a servant, an imitation to Christ, we are linked in such a way, he's the light of the world, we're the light of the world. Intimately linked, intimately working, co-workers together. This is what he does. He lifts us out of the mundane and he sets us in a position that is absolutely amazing. But with that comes the responsibility, of course. He could say the world hated him, and it did. And why did it hate him? Because they did not love the truth. And you'll often find that people who rebel are those who do not want to hear the truth. Now, sometimes we have to preach and teach a hard message. Sometimes we have to preach the truth of the destination of those who are without repentance. And uh, it's a hard thing to say. But we, that's the truth of the word of God, and so we have to do it. But when we do it, we have to do it with a f love pouring out of our souls. Because we don't want anybody to go into that awful place, which is known as the second death, the lake of fire. It's interesting because God himself doesn't want people there. And that's, of course, why he sent his son. And we need to be uh, replicas of the Son. Hebrews 10.10, 10, Law in the volume of the book, I come to do thy will, O God. And, of course, Hebrews 10, this man, after he had offered sacrifices, and with the blood of Christ becomes very, very much important. Why? Because he became obedient even unto death, and that the death of the cross. I, one of the things that amazed me, it was in the English newspapers a little while ago, there was a number of uh, Iraqi children arrested, and uh, they were given a chance to repent of their faith in Christ and return to the Islamic fold. And they said they would not renounce the Lord. And they were all shot. Faithful unto death. 
And at the end of the day, that's what the word witness means. It means martyr. Well, we prepare to be martyrs. One poet wrote this, Faithful amidst unfaithfulness, midst darkness only light, thou didst thy father's name confess, and in his will delight. He was the perfect servant, passing on perfectly all the good works of his father and all of the good words of the father, faithfully, truthfully, honestly, and without prejudice. He gave the same message to the average Jew, working Jew, to the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the lawyers. They all got the same message because he was a faithful servant. The second one is the first begotten from the dead. Now, I need to tell you, I... These are, I'll cut these back because these are all, I have a 45 minute sermon on each of all of these titles. And this one I've called the preeminent saviour. It's a title of preeminence and dignity. God raised, God glorified, first begotten actually speaks of his prestige. He was Lord of the dead, none greater has ever died. It's a title of reverence. I would like just to pause for a second or two and give you my definition of resurrection. Resurrection, to me, is where people are raised from the dead never to die again, physically. In his lifetime, and in the Old Testament, there were people brought back from death to life, but they died at a late stage. But Christ is that first fruits who rose from the dead, never to die again. That is passed on to all believers. One day, the body will die, it will rot, but we'll be with the Lord, we'll have new bodies, and that will be eternal. We will not need to die again. Now, back to this tremendous title. Colossians 1.18, he, and he is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might have the preeminence in all things. He is the first to conquer death, the only one to conquer death. He rose, as we said before, no more to die. And you can get a similar flavour in 1 Corinthians 15. Acts 2.24 Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. You see, it is the person who sinned who, who dies. And Christ didn't sin. He couldn't just die. A lot of people have real problems with this, but listen carefully. Christ didn't just die. He laid down his life as a voluntary sacrifice. People who sin die. 
He doesn't because he did not commit sin. Therefore, death had no claim on him. But he voluntarily laid down his life so that we could have life. Others, as I said, were raised by Christ only to die. But he rose in triumph, victorious forever. He tore the bars away. If I might just uh, a little testimony on the night that uh, I was baptized, uh, I was in a little brethren gospel hall in Newcastle, and uh, as I came up out of the waters of baptism, they were, they were singing the chorus, Up from the grave he arose. I won't sing it, I won't, don't want to put you off. Up from the grave he arose, mighty triumph o'er his foes. Because now, we are living in the goodness of eternal life. Eternal life is not something we are going to get. Eternal life is something we've already received. He said, I give unto my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. And so we are living in a resurrected life situation. Dead, or we should be, dead to sin and alive to Christ. While he lived, he claimed to be the Son of God. And of course, that's why the Jews put him to death. They said it was blasphemy. It was only blasphemy if it wasn't true. Romans, Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 1 and verse 4, that he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Again, let me take you back, Ephesians chapter 1. Good exercise, this, looking through uh, the pages of the Bible and looking at uh, cross-references, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 1. And it goes, Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his rank, right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and what's uh, what is encouraging he's raised up us with him in chapter 2 and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus again there's that intimacy linked together so if he's in heavenly places, we are in him in heavenly places too. His res resurrection was and is proof that he is exactly what he claimed to be. He was the firstborn of many brethren, that is, those who live eternally. As risen head, It fills me with concern that in some of the uh, modern circles, uh, the, the, because the ladies don't like the idea of man being a head, they say head means, uh, headship actually means the origin. Well, let me say something to you. Christ is the origin of the church, that is true. But he's also the head. Now, the thing about the head, 
If he's the head, we are described as the body, the head controls the body. I move my right hand and I wave it around. The, that order comes from the brain. I can switch to the left hand. That order comes from the brain, the head. And Christ is the head of the church, the leader, the director, and the controller through the direct work of the Holy Spirit. But he's also raised up as the high priest, the great high priest, the chief high priest, the one who persistently intercedes for us. And he fulfills that fully. He also has another role to, uh, which he is uh, actively engaged in at this time. 1 Timothy 2.5 One mediator, Jesus Christ. And he intercedes between men and God. One man between men and God. Always seeking to bring them together. Well, he's the perfect servant. He's the preeminent saviour because there is no other saviour. There is no other name given under heaven, given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. The third title is the prince of the kings of the earth or the ruler, prince of the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I've got this PS as the powerful sovereign. 2 Chronicles 29.11 Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted and head over all. And God, speaking of Christ, in Psalm 2, I have set my king on the throne in Zion. The king, long before Jesus was born as a babe, he was designated as king of God's choice. And in that same Psalm, he calls him his son. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll try to avoid sidetracking here because I often preach on Psalm 2 and that particular passage. From the entrance of sin, sin and a majority of mankind have sought to rule the world. I don't know if you ever heard of Milton's uh, book, Paradise Lost. Within that, Satan says, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Pharaoh, and you can, you know, all about Pharaoh and how he hardened his heart. And then because he hardened his heart, God hardened his heart as well. And he came out with this challenge to Moses, who is the Lord that I should serve him? He had his faith and trust in gods that were not gods but simply idols. Another example was the Pharisees. And you know what the Pharisees were like? My. One appalling fact, God gives us 10 commandments, they give us 613. And I often wondered, we cannot keep the 10, how could we ever possibly keep 
the 613th. And me being me, I probably wouldn't even be able to remember the 613th. But they had the f wonderful privilege of communing face to face with this one who is the powerful sovereign. And what did they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Give us Caesar, the king of this world. And of course, you know, the Caesars thought they were gods. Yet despite Satan's onslaught, despite the enmity of many people, Christ still reigns. Do not forget that. He still reigns. I often quote a verse from Hebrews when it goes like this. All things are held together by the word of his power. And if you go back to uh, when he was in the womb, all things were held together by the word of his power. When he was a child playing, all things were held together by the word of his power. When he was suffering, the tortures and the cross, all things were held together by the word of his power. When he was in the tomb, all things were held together by the word of his power. That authority has never ceased. He was still king and still reigns, no matter what it might appear to mankind. Our perfect servant, our preeminent saviour, our powerful sovereign, rules on high. With such power, nothing will fall apart unless he says it. 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he must reign till he put, hath put all his enemies under his feet. Romans 13 teaches all the powers of the world are ordained by God. Therefore ruled by God. And that sometimes creates us a bit of difficulty, doesn't it? Because there are some rulers and leaders who are anything but godly and rule anything but godly fashion. But they're still there by his permission and therefore ruled by him. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, took all the Jews captive. God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Cyrus who eventually decreed that all the, the Jews could go back to Palestine, God called him his servant. He controls all. It's just our understanding of that is sometimes blurred. But the powers of the world are ordained by God and therefore ruled by God. Our present title of Christ again is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the powerful sovereign. Now, Revelation 
as we go through it, will show us the great climax of that great conflict between the enemies of God and the children of God. You can compare Isaiah 40, 23 and Revelation 22, 3. When there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. What a tremendous saviour, our Lord and a friend. But just a little caution. He is so great that we should not treat our friendship casually. There was one American actress who got converted and talked about him being a living doll. What an insult. He's the perfect servant, perfect reputation, uh, representation of all that God is. He is the preeminent saviour because he's overcome all our enemies and gives us eternal life. He's the powerful sovereign because he is in control of all that is happening and all that is going to happen in the future. And that takes us right away through till time shall cease and be no more. What a tremendous saviour we have. And sometimes we forget that. Yes, we do glory in the cross. And we'll come back to that in a second or two. We do glory in the cross and so we should. But please remember that the one on that cross was a powerful sovereign. And it's interesting because what was it Pilate put there? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now what does it say about this triune God? It says, who loves us. <laughs> uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, uh, there abideth faith, hope, and love. Love, of course, is eternal quality because God is love. It's a dependent quality in life. What is that God loves He loves every single person on this earth, without exception. Even the villains. One of the things I was always uh, really thrilled about was reading about an American army pastor in the trials after the end of the Second World War. He went around all of these top Nazis who were on trial for crimes that were almost unmentionable, seeking to bring them to, in, with repentance to Christ. Some did. They still paid the price for their sins, but some did come to know the Lord. But you see, God's not willing that any should perish. And so that quality of love is there for life and eternity. God cannot stop loving us. And the next thing it says about him, that he released us from our sins. Now, I know the, uh, it's different in the authorized, but uh, Conquer. he has Conquer. released us and set us free. At the point of salvation, we were released from sin. 
At this time and point of time in our lives, we are still free. And in the future part of living, we will always be free. Because that powerful sovereign has set us free. How's he done it? By his blood. The tendency in modern Christian thinking is not to dwell on the blood. Well, you're not going to have much time to comment uh, and ask questions tonight, I'm afraid. And I haven't really got time to go through some of the things the blood does for us. But I just mentioned one because we've already mentioned it. Peace. Colossians 1.20, peace comes through the blood. When we're talking of the blood, we're thinking of the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. I don't know about you, but I certainly get excited when I look and see what a wonderful Saviour we have. As I say, it's the unveiling of Christ. It's opening our eyes to see him as he is and to follow him is a tremendous privilege. That was Gordon Stoves on behalf of Gospel Outreach International. We hope you have enjoyed this Bible study and if you'd like to join us for other online Bible studies then you can find more details at goi.org.uk You are welcome to share this Bible study with others but please don't modify it without express permission.